The human animal isn't doing well in the modern world. We have become domesticated and have lost our wildness. The Human Animal Show explores a return to a state of wild health, our original, authentic human animal. And now your hosts, Frank Forensich and Dr. Rodney King. Hello hey. there. Hey, Peter. Hi, Hello. Peter. Hello. So, yeah, good, good yeah, to good, see you. Good to see you, and thanks for joining us, myself and Frank. Really appreciate it. Great. I'm looking forward to it. I mean, I heard a lot about you, Rodney, from Christian, so who's <laughs> so so excited about all the stuff you do. So, yeah. Oh, well, hopefully it was good. Good things you heard from him. Absolutely, absolutely. He holds you in very high esteem. I oh, know. I know. Fantastic. Well, Christian, Christian's been amazing. I mean, I've known him. Oh, geez, I've lost count. It's been a long time, and. uh I would really put him in as one of my early mentors and uh, definitely gave me the courage to kind of get out there and do stuff. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, I owe Good. him big time. <laughs> right. So, Peter, normally what we do on, on the show, right, we kind of like have this like preamble. It's our thesis. Basically, you know, this is the state of the world. The world's going to shit. Right. But at the end of the day, um, I don't think I even have to read it because um, I guess, you know, like a lot of people have read your new book and uh, it's a it's a hard read. Right. If you think about what you're actually putting forward there. Yeah, it is. Yes. And uh, so I guess that would be a good starting point. The book is for those who, you know, who don't know, it's Forgiving Humanity. And I thought maybe a, a good starting point would be if you could just kind of give us a brief overview of the thesis of the book before we quiz you a little bit on and have right, some questions right, for you. Right. Yes. Yeah. A brief overview is hard because, I mean, in the book, I condensed it down to <laughs> I know. I wanted the book short, really short, because I know people don't have a lot of time. So I really condensed all the arguments down. So it's pretty dense and it is as you say a hard read it is a hard read um my other books have been more people say more optimistic i think i've always tried to be realistic mm. um, i just felt for years i've had this this thing about how we are looking at the future and how we do not take accelerating change into account when we look at the future we look at the future hundreds thousands of years ahead you know, we just we intuit, sort of unconsciously think in linear change. If this much change has happened in the last hundred years, then similar amounts of change will happen in the next hundred, maybe a bit more. We know things are going mm. faster, but we don't realize how much faster they're going. And I've been interested in exponential change right back from when I was, you know, a mathematician and first came across it. Because the thing about exponential change is not only it gets faster and faster. Because of the way it's multiplying, it reaches completely unimaginable rates of change very, very fast. I mean, the whole thing, we you know, if you invest a dollar at compound interest, 10% compound interest, after 50 years, it's worth $117. And after a thousand years, after 100 years, it's worth, I think, 13,000. Things just escalate like that. And what I see is the future is the same way. And the reason our development escalates in an exponential way is because as I term it, innovation breeds innovation. 
the more you know technological advances means that we can do different scientific experiments which means we can have more knowledge which means we can do you know do better technologies make better technologies so the whole thing is feeding back on itself and whenever you get positive feedback you get exponential growth and that's what's mm. happening with interest in a bank and people talk about this or oh, things are getting faster but we don't realize what the exponential curve means and it means that if we follow this thing of getting faster and faster because innovation is breeding innovation we're going to see ridiculous well almost unsustainable rates of change in just 10 20 30 years it's, it's going fast particularly with artificial intelligence now coming online where artificial intelligence will start designing even better artificial intelligence where again you've got this positive feedback loop of things getting faster and faster now the way we the sort of normal way that people look at it, the common way is, ah, you know, this is going to be, we're going to have unimaginable technology. And that's true. The technology that's going to be coming down the next 10 years alone is going to be almost unimaginable. 20 years after that, we've no idea where we'll be. And that's a sort of the positive side, which mm. is going to be happening. But what we don't look at is the cost of exponential change, particularly on the environment. And if you look at most of what is going wrong, not all of it, but a lot of what is going wrong, the issues we're facing, the global crisis, a lot of it comes back to the fact of our exponential growth, where it's the exponential growth in consumption of resources or pollution that's also growing exponentially. All of this is really affecting the environment. I mean, climate change, for example, is a result of our escalating consumption of fossil fossil fuels burning oil and coal and putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere thousands of times faster than the planet can adapt to it yeah. and that's the side we don't look at and when you look at that the thesis i come to is that any technological civilization and this is the bit that you know is a bit hard for people to accept any technological civilization is actually short-lived because sooner or later the impact of this accelerating change on the environment starts creating just crises after crises. And, you know, we see we're possibly in the, you know, a sixth uh, major mass extinction on earth. And I'm not necessarily saying, you know, humans going to be extinct, but civilized, this civilization doesn't, is, is going to collapse. I think it's a global civilization collapsing. We've never had that before and don't know where it's going. And this, this is what I felt for a long time is something that I called our blind spot on the future. We we always come back to thinking unconsciously in terms of linear change. We don't think in terms of exponentials. Our minds aren't used to it. We didn't evolve in an exponential world. Hmm. And so that's that's the basic thesis, I'm saying. And really looking at, okay, if that's what's happening, what, what can we do? I'm really saying it comes back to accepting that maybe things aren't going to turn out the way we want, but we have to learn to have greater inner resilience to cope with the changes and more compassion for people for what we're going through. And also seeing that, you know, in a way, there's also another side to look at this. You know, we are this incredible blossoming of consciousness in the cosmos, which happens, you know, maybe once in a planet's lifetime. And we are the most amazing beings and, Maybe we have to let go of the fact that this amazing being should be here forever, just as we accept the fact that, you know, our own personal amazing being is not going to be here forever. But we celebrate ourselves as this amazing being, knowing that we're going to come to an end. Can we do the same with the species, except that we are this 
incredible species capable of so much and maybe we're just here for a brief flash of time so that's a really good overview i was thinking as you were saying that it's, it's basically the way that you're describing it as this paradox of technology but yeah. you know technology yeah. in some respects we can say well the first time a human discovered that he could for example create a spear use that spear to hunt an animal realize that actually if he came together as a group and they all had spears they could hunt a even bigger animal that they couldn't do on their own that's kind of the start you could say is of technology right oh. amongst amongst other things right as an example yeah. I guess what my question is, is that, so technology has been around in some way, shape or form since the dawn of mankind. Where was this kind of tipping point, do you think, where it now gets to the point where we have this exponential technological change that, in your words, is going to likely lead to the end of our civilization, possibly. I guess, why were we okay for so long and now suddenly we're not? And it's in such a short period of time. Um, I don't think there was a tipping point. I think the thing is with exponential growth, it starts off looking very, very, very slow. And we don't sort of realize it's exponential. But I think you're right. It goes back to, I would say, the spear is probably one of the first things. And, you know, again, we were using tools. We are using maybe axes and things mm. to create spears. I, and I see technology as using tools to create better tools. And so, you know, even then, it, it's, you know, one of the bits of data we have is that some of the great, great mammals, the mammals and things, started becoming extinct at the time we developed the spear. And so already there was some effect on the environment. And, you know, we went on, you know, we developed fire, but then agriculture it came a lot later, but agriculture was about 10, 10 to 20,000 years ago. And that started having an effect on the land, on the soil. And it, in a way, began the movement into cities, which happened a lot faster. And then, you know, that, you know, civilizations, the first civilizations, maybe two and a half thousand years ago, maybe more in China, and that's been speeding up. And then the Industrial Revolution was only 250 years it began. And the Information Revolution, probably 50 years. So this speeding up has been there all along, but we never really saw it until today. We never saw the impact today. I mean, after the Industrial Revolution, we began to see, we began to see, you know, accelerating progress. We realized things were getting were, were beginning to grow faster. And so it's been there. It's been there all along. There, to me, there wasn't a tipping point. We are now at a time where the implications of that, the ramifications, are beginning to become obvious in our own lifetime. Mm. I'm wondering if, like, also, just you were talking about agriculture, which then changed the landscape in a lot of ways. Where now suddenly you were able to feed a lot more people, and so coming out of that, and plus, obviously, the advances at the time there was a population explosion and that's also relatively recent. And I wonder how much of that has actually played also into technology in a sense, speeding up the more people we have, it seems the more technology we seem to need. Yes, absolutely. They, they, all of it's playing into itself, playing back into itself the whole time. Yes. And, and technology, you know, things like, you know, having metal plows really promoted, agriculture things like that so yes and the 
I mean, population exploded because we were healthier and, you know, could build better homes and things for ourselves. And then later, you know, improve sanitation. So all the time we've been using technology to improve, you know, health, which has promoted the population growth. And as we've got more comfortable in our lifetime, we've had, you know, we're able to sit back and begin to contemplate the universe more and become scientists. So I think it's it's all feeding back on itself the whole time. Thank mm. I'm curious about the linkage between this acceleration, this exponential change and stress and mental health, because it seems like we are reaching the limits of our ability to cope with change. Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. And in fact, at the point I look, stress, we usually define stress as a failure to adapt to change. Change is coming so fast we can't adapt. And I mean, I see that in, in today's world. As things get faster, there's more and more things we have to learn, take care of, adapt to. There's more changes that are coming, you know, more software updates, whatever it is, more new technologies. And people are having to, in, in all of this, we're not moving into the leisure society. People are having to sort of expect it to work harder and then keep up with Facebook and everything else. And yes, I mean, that's why people are talking about burnout becoming more and more prevalent in, in various industries. And, you know, as we know, the effect of stress on our health, this has been known, you know, for, for a number of years now that many of our health complaints underlying them is stress, either the cause or stress is exacerbating the situation. So, yes, we are, as individuals, becoming under increasing stress. And I think most of us are doing that. It's like we're, we're so enmeshed in this in this growth, this acceleration, we can't step back. We have to sort of try to keep up with it in order to survive these days. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point about just having to survive. Because I was thinking as well, you know, like the way that I would just frame this is this is the what we're talking about is this dominant worldview, our modern dominant worldview. And I always find it fascinating that when you suggest to somebody that, you know, the reason why you're feeling so bad, the reason why you're struggling so much, is not that there's something inherently wrong with you, but there's something inherently wrong with the system that we're living in. And that's the thing that's causing the dysfunction, the psychological, emotional, and spiritual kind of sense of loss that you're feeling. But I, I find like there's always this resistance, right? Like people don't actually want to acknowledge what I'm saying is true. And I guess part of that is because it's devil, it's better the devil you know than the devil you don't, right? I mean, that's kind of I feel like how most people kind of kind of sense this whole thing. You know, that like I'd rather just keep my head down and, and, and things will get better because everything's been promised, right? There's going to be better technology, things are going to be better. But we've been hearing that ever since the I don't know if you remember the Jetsons, right? That that cartoon. <laughs> if you look at the time frame for the Jetsons. It was roundabout now. We should be all in flying cars and everything should be great and robots should be doing everything for us. But as you keep noting, right, is that the more technology we have, the worse things actually seem to become. Yes, the more, the more. There is. I mean, I remember, you know, when computers first started coming on the scene, people talked about the leisure society. Computers mm. going to do all this work for us. They're going to take over stuff. And there's going to be massive unemployment because we wouldn't need secretaries anymore. And it's been the opposite. I mean, it, there's so many, I mean, so much employment in the computer industry, but the leisure society, it's, it's the opposite. We have less leisure. I mean, with friends, often look back to how things were, you know, 30, 40 years ago. And it's like, wow, life was so much easier then, much less to worry about to do. It was, like, it was a much simpler life. 
Yeah, so I'm thinking also, you know, Peter, like as, as we're talking about this, just to kind of get a sense of the kind of what's happening on the ground. Let's say you're right, and 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 I mean, our sense is that that you're right. This is kind of what we're feeling. Myself and Frank, we talk about this all the time. But let's say this is the direction we're going, right? Where we have to, in essence, accept extinction. It's gonna it's gonna happen. What do you think is gonna happen between now and then? Between that that time where this actually happens, what do you think is gonna happen on the ground? I mean, outside of climate change, I'm seeing a lot more violence, right? I mean, just look at just in the in the recent time, just in the last two years. I mean, yeah. we've got wars popping up all over the place. I mean, is this something that's just going to basically just continue and just proliferate throughout the entire globe? I mean, what are we looking at here? Yes, um, I think we're looking at a, a lot of things. Um, sadly, we may be looking at more wars. I, I agree things have been proliferating. In, in that respect and you know some of that is over resources scant resources you know whether we're fighting you know indirectly behind the scenes over oil or over water water rights so that you know the scarcity of resources is going to increase that and also i mean migration i don't think we've seen anything yet in terms of mass migration when you know areas become uninha uninhabitable the only choice people have is to move so mm. that's going to be a problem. But I think also beyond that, it's like, how are people going to react? I think already there's a growing despair and despondency. I know friends of mine who are therapists saying, you know, that more and more clients are coming in not to try and sort out their marriage or their anxiety or depression, but like they're, they're angst about the future. They're coming in, they don't know what to do because they're, they're so anxious about what's going to happen or the future their children are coming into. It isn't the future we, you know, we'd like them to have inherited. So I think there's going to be a growing despair, depression, anxiety psychologically. And that's why I think, you know, now more than ever, we're going to need an inner development, an inner, what I call awakening of consciousness to begin to deal with that in ourselves and not get so caught up in it. If we get, if we get caught up in that, we're just going to become more and more anxious depressed and we're going to see things are futile which, which i think we have to move through that and we have mm. to help move through that and you know in, in any grief, grieving process of somebody you know somebody we know dying we go through a process and in the end we come to acceptance of that okay this has happened and i think ultimately where we need to be coming to is an acceptance in ourselves okay the future is not what i thought it was going to be and can we accept that things are going to be very different and that's one reason behind writing the book was to in a way by showing underneath everything that's going wrong what is there underneath and that this is almost unavoidable then maybe we can come to some greater acceptance of our situation Mm. So before before we talk about that, because I think that's really important, I just want to go back to something you just said earlier, right in the beginning, Peter, which I think is really important. And to me, this is a very profound statement, and I think most people don't see it this way. When we look at most conflict, and this is something I heard, I don't know if you know Vandana Shiva talk about this, but she was talking about this, and she was saying that most of the time when we see conflict, we are told that it's a conflict over ideologies, religions, and things like that. But actually, 
if you look very closely, almost all of these conflicts are about resources, dwindling resources, unable to access certain resources. And maybe you can speak a little bit about that, because I think that's very important that people understand that a lot of the conflicts that we tend to see, it's not as obvious as it looks and what's really driving this. If you look deeper, a lot of times it has to do with resources. And I'm assuming that based on what you're saying, that's going to get a lot worse. Oh, I think inevitably, inevitably, because, mm. you know, we're digging out or pumping out the resources faster and faster. That's part of the exponential growth is we're actually consuming things faster and faster, particularly as, you know, the less developed world wants to try and catch up with the more developed world in terms of what they have. So that's going to be an added increase to consumption. And yes, I mean, I think that's been throughout history, you know, Wars have been fought over land, agricultural land, or over sea rights, or whatever it is. I think it's always been underneath. It's been about resources, or you could say underneath. Now is not just resources. Underneath it all is that the impact of accelerating change on resources. Mm. I think again, it's always been there, but now it's becoming more and more obvious. I mean, how many, how much is oil behind many of the conflicts in the world? Access to oil because we're so wedded to oil. Yeah, I'm wondering, like, as, as you were saying that, because I was wondering, like, why that is always the narrative that we sold, right? We sold the narrative, narrative of oh, it's political or it's ideological, it's religious. And I think the reason why it gets framed that way is because when you actually talk about the resources and the lack of access to those resources, then you can't avoid the humanity. But when you, you know, put forward the, these other reasons, politics and so forth, then it's almost like we can distance ourselves from, from other human beings, right? So we, we lose that, that empathetic touch, that, that, that inside, that empathy that would drive us to want to make positive change for other people. If we just say it's politics, then it's almost a way to kind of distance ourselves from the reality. Absolutely. And almost maybe sort of cast blame upon one side or mm. the other well, rather than seeing... This is what happens when things get scarce. This is this is what happens. We we start fighting each other. And it's sad. But maybe, you know, if we look at other, you know, other creatures, you know, maybe they also, you know, they're after scant resources sometimes. And there's competition that goes on. Maybe it's the fundamental competition in life is to is access to resources to keep us on an animal level to keep us alive, but at our level to keep us in the comfortable ways of life we've got used to. Mm. Yeah, right. but it is, you're right. It is, it's basically, it's a human issue. We don't, we don't want to go without, we don't want to suffer. We don't want to be in pain. I mean, this is, this is really the fundamental motivation deep, deep down of all of us. We, we want to stay comfortable. We want to be content. We don't want to suffer. We don't want to be in pain. And as resources dwindle, then the implication of that is we're not going to have enough. We're going to suffer. Mm. Frank? This idea of forgiving humanity, that sounds very uh, appealing to me. And <laughs> I, I, would, I would love to get on board with that. However, I have friends in the activist community who would push back hard on that. And they say, no, there's actual criminals that yeah. are conducting what is, in effect, intergenerational genocide. And these people are in fossil fuel companies and other big companies that 
by no stretch of the imagination should they be forgiven. So how do you balance out those, those two ideas? Absolutely. And um, that that um, misunderstanding, and ine- not inevitable, uh, that misunderstanding comes because I'm not talking about forgiving people or organizations or nations or anything for a lot of the damage or suffering that they've caused. What what I'm saying about forgiveness is they may have promoted a lot of the problems we're facing in one way or another, but the acceleration itself has Mm -hmm. not been caused by human beings, has not been caused by organizations. The acceleration itself is inevitable. And so where we stand today with the impact of the acceleration on the environment is not something that human beings have created. So overall, human beings may have created a lot of the actual problems that are occurring, but they haven't created the overall trend and different decisions in the past by people, organizations, nations may have led to, you know, different paths we've taken on this journey, but they wouldn't have stopped the acceleration. We would still be facing the, you know, the price of the acceleration on on the environment. So yes, I I very much agree with your activists and I don't want to, you know, reduce responsibility there for any of those people. And they, you know, people need, people need to take responsibility and there is blame. We can put blame on them for individual occur individual but particular events how things have turned out but not for the overall the overall sort of meta crisis that we're facing which is the crisis of acceleration we is that to... what is that what some people call a emergent property of large complex systems is that what um, the language you use i've heard that before and yes that's um, like what you're talking about it does i haven't considered that before that yeah, point, maybe yes. I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, but yes, that's that's interesting. I, I I'd like to sort of think about that a bit. But mm. yes, so yeah. Peter, yeah, I, well, just a question from my side because I'm I'm trying to like obviously like fully understand the thesis. I mean, am I correct in in what I'm saying yet? If I understood correctly, what you're saying is is that any intelligent species that starts creating technology will invariably, regardless always end up destroying themselves is that really the the kind of fundamental piece of this yes i would phrase it slightly differently um, okay but yes any what i call any intelligent technologically empowered species will end up on this curve of innovation furthering more innovation they will end up on this accelerating curve and I would say inevitably that's going to start having its cost on people, but economies and on the planet at large. So coming to this state of affairs, I think is inevitable. Um, How we respond in this state of affairs is, you know, there are still choices here, but I, I think it's inevitable that they will arrive at this state where they begin to see the technology is growing so fast and the repercussions are growing so fast that in a way it's we've reached an unsustainable state because mm. i guess like you know one of the arguments would be like let's say for example we were in the united states and 
we were talking to somebody who is in favor of being armed, right? And they want to carry a firearm. Their argument would be is that the firearm isn't the problem. It's how the firearm is used, right? So if we juxtapose that to technology, why is it then that technology and the constant innovation is invariably going to lead to the extinction of humanity, potentially, why can it not be that it does the opposite? And is that not then a case of how that technology is used? I mean, just as an example to that would be oftentimes, and I've seen this time and time again, something is created, a technological thing is created. And on the face of it, it seems like that would be very good for humanity, but invariably it gets picked up and used as an implement of war that always seems to be like a default right so many of the things that started off as maybe a good idea have ended up being used for the wrong thing so how much of this problem is actually us as humanity using the technology in the wrong way yeah this is i mean this is an important question and what comes up as you're saying is is you know let's just think of the internal combustion engine so so here's a technology which is, you know, it's been, it was developed, it's very useful for transport. Mm. And, you know, the question is, could we then have, back then, have really had the foresight to see where it leads? I mean, no one, no one actually saw the, the coming of climate change until the, the very late 1800s, when a Norwegian started looking at it and saying, hang on, we might start producing CO2 faster then the planet can adapt. But even then, no, no one took it seriously. So, you know, the question is, could we way back then have really limited the use of the internal combustion engine when everybody wants to be able to get around and travel and it's important, you know, not only for personal travel, but haulage, industry, many, many other things. So it's almost given, given human nature, it almost seems inevitable that anything which gives us an advantage like that, improves our comfort, improves our well-being, our access to things, is going is going to catch on. So, you know, it seems that, you know, the so then the, you know, consumption of oil looks like it, it was inevitable it would start um, growing exponentially. You know, added to that, industry loves oil, you know, so much of industry is powered by oil behind the scenes. And would industry have voluntarily said, no, we, we can't do this because it's going to lead to, you know, so much CO2 in the atmosphere, it's going to lead to climate change. A, could we have had the foresight to limit it? And even if we had the foresight, would we have had the willingness to do it? So, you know, that's just, you know, those sorts of questions come up for me. I mean, even now, we do have the foresight to see where climate change is going, but we don't have the willingness we don't have, you know, we make many nice statements about you know, let's keep the temperature below two degrees or whatever it is, or 2.5 degrees. And, you know, all the plans that are put in place when you look at them are really just hope, hopeless. You know, okay, we're going to be carbon neutral by 2050. By 2030, climate change is going to be far more severe than it is now. Being climate, being carbon neutral by 2050 is like, ah, so what? That What difference is that going to make? And we're not even really looking like achieving that. So 
that's those are sort of questions that come up about you know is it inevitable or not yeah there's two things yeah yeah. yeah. there's two things that come up for me there one somebody asked me this a while back and you know what do you think is the biggest problem with the with humanity and i said greed i think is a massive thing a lot of where we are is because of greed and and unfortunately we've elevated certain people to have much more power than they deserve and power over so many resources and people but yeah. it's interesting, like another example of something that we did to solve a problem that seemed like the right thing at the time inevitably became a problem down the road. And I'm thinking about the problem uh, back way back when in the United Kingdom, when there were still horses and carriages and there was horse manure everywhere and people were getting sick and tired of just, you know, having to trample in the horse manure. And so there was this kind of, you know, this this need the speed to design a new vehicle and that became the automobile and uh, it seemed like a really good thing at the time it got rid of the horse crap all of the of the streets right and the concern of always ha- you know the feeding of horses and stabling and so forth but long term it ended up being very destructive to the environment yeah yeah, yeah let's go back to greed because mm-hmm. greed up again and again and it is a major factor and and i think greed we trade it is partly you know social conditioning etc we you know we put out these ideas oh you know the wealthier we are the happier we're going to be are the more we have but i think basically it's a spiritual issue underneath Mm. and i think the sort of spiritual um idea that really runs our society is if you're going to be happy you've got to have the world that be the right way if you're not happy there's something wrong in the world you've got to do something about it and so this means we we think that in order to be happy we've got to have the right things do the right things and i say it's spiritual because i think what all the great teachings point out underneath is that that's a completely upside down way of looking at it that we as human as human beings our natural state of mind is one of contentment when everything is okay and there's nothing to worry about we feel okay so we don't need to go anywhere or get anything in order to be content we actually are content when we're not searching for things when we're not feeling discontent but our whole culture tells us no you 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 can't have this you've got to have this you've got to do this they're they're fueling discontent the whole time. And that fueling of discontent fuels the idea that I've got to have more, which fuels the whole greed thing. So I, I think, you know, the greed comes out of living in a materialistic culture. And, you know, our idea of, you know, a spiritually enlightened person or spiritually enlightened societies, we imagine them to be ones where there isn't greed, where people are happy with what they have. So, what I'm saying here is greed, yes, greed is a really significant factor in all of this. But in a way, to blame people for being greedy, it's almost like we need to blame the system for being one that actually promotes greed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And that's been my that's been my thesis. That's what I've been writing a lot about, which comes back to what I said earlier. I, I try to get people to understand that there's nothing inherently wrong with you. The problem is the system. And it's the system that is dictating to you to do certain things and says, if you do this, you will be happy, you will be successful, you will feel contentment. And then you go along and you do all those things and you just feel worse. 
And yeah. then naturally what happens is people go, well, there must be something wrong with me. I mean, I was even, even having this conversation with, uh, with somebody a little while ago. We were talking about psychology and self-help. And I said, isn't it interesting that many of the protocols that have set put forward for, for, for a person to work through in order to get through whatever they, they're dealing with is all about normalizing you to be normal in the system. Yeah. But there's nothing yeah. normal about the system. <laughs> right. So, right. So, so actually you should be doing the complete opposite. And so what I've been doing just in my own personal practice, I take this approach. Whatever the dominant worldview says I should do to be happy, I just do the complete opposite. I think that's the wisest thing we can do. Really wise. And and it works. It does. It just doesn't make you popular, though, right? So that's the thing, right? So then you're an outsider. You're an outlier. Or in the, the words of in martial arts, you're a ronin. You know, so right. you're like this renegade samurai because you're refusing to buy into the status quo and everybody looks at you as if you're, you're insane. But you're thinking, no, 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 you guys are nuts. You guys are going down this path. Then all you do is complain and moan, even though actually you, you have everything you need, right, in order to be happy. So yeah. that you always, there's, there's exactly what you said. There's always the sense of something's missing, something's missing. I need to gain that in order to... I'll be if I get that, I'll be happy. But that isn't the case. And it's just this constant search. And so obviously technology then feeds into that, right? You know, if I can use technology to get to get better and, and be happier, then that's the route I'm going to go. But as as we're talking about this, clearly that's not evident. I mean, I think right. people are now more unhappy than they've ever been ever in the history of, of humanity. And we we talked to John Viveki and he was talking about a meaning crisis. And it is comes back to your point about a spiritual crisis which is really another way of saying that there's a crisis in meaning yeah yes yes i mean just a small point i wouldn't say you know we're unhappier than we've ever been you know if we go back to early times where there may have been famines and things like that you know we'd have been suffering a lot we might have you know but generally i think generally yes yeah, because yeah. that, that's that's interesting. And and myself and Frank have read a lot about this particular thing. And I agree, of course, there were hard, there's always been hard times for for humans on this planet, right? There were famines and, and so yeah. forth. But I think there is always there's if you go back and you look at indigenous people, and especially I was watching, for example, I was watching a, a very old documentary about Bushmen who have very little, right? Because they're hunter-gatherers, they move from one place to the to the next. And they were talking about them as the original affluent society, meaning that, you know, they're just their sense of peace, considering yeah. that they, you know, in our view, they have nothing, but actually in their view, they have everything. And I think exactly. really what it is, it's about what they place importance on, right? It's because family, exactly. community, connection, the deep connection to nature, nature as a living entity, not as some kind of mechanistic machine, and all of those things brings about that sense of meaning for them that we have completely lost. Right, right. And that's why I think, you know, I would use the word contentment. Contentment's you know, a better word. Only reason I use happiness is because that's the general term, right? But you're right. That's a general I, term. I prefer contentment. Kind of, happiness conjures up like something more active. I'm happy about this, happy about that. Whereas contentment is more, it's not contentment about anything. It's an, it's an innocent, I'm just content. It's a, it's a state of not wanting, not needing. 
Yeah, I love that. Because like, you know, oftentimes when I think about happiness, happiness to me is fleeting. It's a yeah. momentary thing where contentment is a long term, right? Meaning that right. I can, life can be sucky right now and can be really shit, but I can still be content. Yeah. I might exactly. not be happy, but I'm still content. It's a different right. thing, right? Yeah. And what we've been talking about is how our society just promotes discontent everywhere mm. you go. Every single advertisement is ultimately so saying, true. you cannot be content as you are. You're missing something. That's Buy this product, whatever it is, and you will be happier. You will be content, not realizing they are seeding the discontent to make you do something to try and then do something, find contentment. I mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah, it's it, well, it's actually intentional. It's called pain marketing. And the idea is that, you know, the consumer has some kind of deficit, some kind of problem, and we'll introduce the magic solution. And if the consumer is not aware of their deficit, then we will create one. We will, you know, put the, especially in the health and fitness world. I mean, it's put the body beautiful on the cover. You don't have this. This is not you. You've got a problem. We can fix it. And yeah, uh, yeah. And, and we're subjected to that all day long, every day. It's crazy. It's crazy. You know, maybe we should be glad this civilization's coming to an end. It's so crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm not in yeah. disagreement there. So Peter, you know, as we, we kind of come near to the end, what I would like to do is we have kind of touched on it, but I want to hear from you, like, let's shift gears a little bit. Let's, let's, let's attempt to be more positive, right? If that's, if that's even possible, considering what we're talking about. Let's say we, we accept everything you've said. What should we be doing? Because there's a, obviously there's a sense of people going, well, what's the point, right? I might as well just end myself right now and just what's the point of carrying on? I don't think that's what you're saying, right? So, right. yeah. No, I'm not at all, no. Um, it's a question of how do we carry on? What, mm. what do we need in these situations? And I think there's a number of things. You know, I've talked about acceptance and that that's, you know, the first thing where acceptance, okay, this is what's happening. And through acceptance, I think we have less, we, we get up, there's not so much to get upset about with acceptance. So then it's like, okay, what do we need? We're going to be facing a world that's, you know, creating unexpected, unpredictable things are going to start happening. And probably some you know, quite distressing things. How do we cope with that internally, first of all, you know, and I think, you know, for me, I'm looking at the more stable I am in myself, which is the more, you know, what we've been talking about, the more I'm not so conditioned into believing that society is going to make me happy, the more I'm going to be that contentment in myself means I'm going to be less thrown around psychologically by events. Mm. And at the same time, you know, as, as we're more content in ourselves, I believe we can be more flexible in how we respond to things. So it's like, say, instead of saying, oh, this is the way we've always done things and I can't do this anymore, it's like, okay, what's the most creative, wise, loving way I can respond in this particular situation, whatever it is? And and compassion, I think, this is, this is it's calling for... It's calling for more open heartedness and compassion. I mean, both both for ourselves, what we're going through, but you know, as other people, you know, face up to what's happening. As we've said, there's going to be a lot of despair, distress, that sort of thing. 
And what people need in that situation is, is compassion in terms of care, love, understanding, help. We're, we're going to need that. And so what I'm saying is underneath, I think it's really a call for the sort of spiritual conscious awakening that many of us have been calling for for a long time. But now, not in order to save the world and make everything okay, but to help us navigate these times with with wisdom and care and compassion. And the payoff of that is we may actually, you know, start enjoying a more awakened state in the midst of all this, hopefully. But that that's what it is for me. And that's, you know, since I've really taken this view seriously, I found I'm more at ease with things, funnily enough. It may seem strange, but I'm not so upset about all the different things that go wrong in the world. Like, oh, this this person's doing this, this is happening. It's like, okay, this is how it this is how it is to be going through these times. So that that's what I, I see is what we can do. And of course, that doesn't mean we stop fighting against injustices. There's, there's still lots we can do there, things that are not um promoting human happiness, health, whatever, well-being creating suffering pain there's still a lot we can do and a lot of you know the what you talk about the activists there's so much we can still do there but maybe we can do it from a calmer state rather than coming at it out of anger yes yeah. uh, so those, those are my initial thoughts yeah well i have a related idea here I've, I've got two teachers essentially uh one is Greta Thunberg, and of course, she is all about panic. I mean, she's all about fear. You know, that's her message is we need to be more afraid. We need to panic up. The house is burning down. And on the other side, I have a friend in Yosemite who is a, a lifelong climber and became kind of a spiritual teacher. And his his point that he comes back to over and over again is people need to stop being so afraid. Because that's the root of all this dysfunction is fear, right. and if we if we get people to calm down, then we've got a chance. So right. I like to have both those uh, that polarity yeah. between those yeah. two people. Yes, I mean Greta. Yes, we we're not panicking enough, mm. but is, it, is panic going to be enough? Because you know, panics will that really help us? you know reverse climate change i i don't know i mean certainly we, we're not aware we're, we're all you know we i'm talking about the the, the general we are, are just stumbling blindfold into this yeah so part of what i think i'm trying to do is actually take off the blindfolds and maybe we won't be stumbling quite so much mm. i was thinking also this the idea of fear is that also again in this modern worldview when we talk about compassion empathy now that's not to say people don't have that but generally speaking it's i can just you know talking from a male perspective and where i came from originally south africa very patriarchal society to show any of those would be seen as a weakness yeah. so you grow up i grew up in a survival mode where i grew up basically in government housing i had a, an abusive alcoholic mother I always felt and saw things like empathy, compassion. I saw them as, as something to fear, as a weakness, not a strength. And it took a lot of work on my own trauma 
in order to come out the other side to realize that actually that is a that is a strength. If anything, that really is what I feel is our superpowers. Yeah. And and you have done that. And what I've heard from Christian is like you have really A, you've done that for yourself, and now you're taking it out and giving what you've learned to the world. And there's more and more people like you in various mm -hmm. ways who sure. had some awakening and are now sharing it with others. And this is the other side of the whole exponential growth is we've got a sort of third factor. We've got technology growing, we've got collapse growing, but we've also got this awakening of consciousness growing because, again, it's exponential. You know, the more of us who are waking up like this, the more we can help other people, the more they wake up. And so I see what, you know, what we're talking about here is something that's also growing exponentially. And we're going to need, you know, more and more people doing, doing what you're doing in the world. And I think this is going to happen more and more of this more. Let's just call you teachers. It's going to be more and more teachers helping people or guides. I prefer the word guide, actually. Teaching actually, guides. a really good word, guides. It's so interesting yeah. that you say that, Peter, because on my site, on my website, where obviously I talk about my work, I refer to myself as a guide because that's where I see it. That's that's yeah. a good way to describe it. Yeah, 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 yes. Yeah. And myself, I mean, I teaching implies you've got some special knowledge. It implies it doesn't mean that necessarily, but it implies you know something. Whereas I just say, you know, I've had my own journey and I found bits that have been really helpful for me, and I like to share them with you. I love that. That's great. Well, thanks, Peter. We want to be respectful of your time, so we're going to let you go. But that was amazing, and uh, I, I'm sure Frank felt, you know, we got a lot out of that. Absolutely, yeah. Lovely. Okay, beautiful. lovely to meet you both. Yeah, yeah beautiful just... to connect with you, Peter. It was fantastic. Appreciate your time. Okay, thank you. Thank bye. you. Cheers, bye. Cheers. Hey, Dr. King here. Thank you for joining myself and Frank on an exploration in improving the health of the human animal. To find out more about our work, you can visit frank at exuberantanimal.com. For coaching with me, gear, and to find out more about the Human Animal Project, as well as my retreats, go to drrodneyking.com. Until next time, be wild, be free.